Because there was a, a man, a native of Dominican Republic. There's only one reason really to worship. Last year, who got say lost hallelujah. at sea. This morning when we, we were doing our, for 24 straight our days. preparation devotion, we quoted from... 24 days, he was caught by, he was rescued by the Colombian authorities. And according to him, he survived on only ketchup and Maggi cubes. I cannot imagine having ketchup for breakfast, ketchup for lunch, ketchup for dinner. Maggi cubes the second day for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. But he survived. I mean, seriously, think about it. Think of the fear that you have if you're alone in the sea, in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows you are there. Nobody knows you are there, and there's no rescue on hand. And each day, your life is slipping away. Think about that fear. Today, I want to talk to you about finding refuge in God. What does it mean to find refuge in God? And how do we survive the isolation and vulnerability in the journey of faith? 1 Samuel 21 to 22, David was on the run. He was basically a fugitive from justice. He was not guilty, by the way. His only crime was defeating Goliath. But Saul did not like it. He was a competition to the throne. So David fled, and what he thought to be the safest place to be where he was was the tabernacle. So he went to the tabernacle, and he met a priest. The priest's name was Ahimelech. The priest probably knows why he was there and why he was running away because the, the city of Nob was just six miles away from the capital in Gibeah. And so when he went there, the priest trembled and asked him the most logical thing in the world to ask. That's 1 Samuel 21 verse 1. The, the priest said, why are you alone? Why is it that no one is with you? Now, David has to lie in order to survive. And he said he was on a king's secret mission. That's why he was not able to buy or to bring provisions, and he was not able to also bring his sword. But the question is, what exactly is David doing at the tabernacle while he was running away from the king? This is the next conversation in chapter 21, verse 8 through 10. It says, Then David said to Himelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you have struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. Now, why was David in the tabernacle? He wants the sword. Now, remember, that the Philistines had the monopoly of iron and weapons. The Israelites have no weapons at all. And so this <clears throat> excuse me, legendary sword of Goliath was very important for him. Now, he's thinking if he possessed this, this sword, the sword that killed and decapitated Goliath, maybe the people will fear him. Maybe Saul will give a pause and will not, and will not pursue him. That was the plan. See, the bread and the sword were incidental to his mission. His real goal was something else. I think the more, more importantly, his real goal is that he wants to inquire of the Lord. It's not immediately in the text. You will find it in the next chapter. You go down to verse 13. This is what it says. This is where Saul has caught up with the priest and he was accusing the priest of conspiracy. So Saul said to him, the priest, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? In that you have given him bread, you have given him sword, 
and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. David's main goal, why he went to the tabernacle, was to inquire from the Lord. Now, why is that? Because, if you remember, when Samuel anointed David, Samuel did not give any instruction what to do with the anointing. Samuel did not give him five steps to freedom or ten steps to victory. Samuel didn't give him instructions like, after five years, you're going to become king. Saul will be deposed, and you will be the new king. There was nothing like that. So David wants to know the next step. What am I going to do with the anointing that God has given me? So he knows that he fought Goliath and he won, but what is that? All he knew was he was a shepherd, and then an old guy came to visit him, and he was anointed with oil. He doesn't even understand what that means. And then his father asked him to go to the battlefront, and then he fought this big giant, and then he won. And then he became the best friend of the king's son. He married the king's daughter. He became an instant celebrity. But running away from David wasn't part of the plan. Running away as a fugitive wasn't part of the plan. Who would have thought that the anointing would get him in trouble? Who would have thought that following God's will would ever get him in trouble? Have you ever been in this situation where following God got you in trouble? You see, the reason why David visited the tabernacle was to inquire of the Lord. He wanted to know what's next for him. What he's going to do next now that he's running away from Saul. But instead, in the tabernacle, instead of finding refuge, he, he found himself walking away and going to the direction of the enemy. Whatever that he got from the tabernacle, whatever the priest told him after inquiring of the Lord, he did not stay there. He went to the direction of the enemy. This is what he said in 21 verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And so he thought he was finding refuge, but then he was led to the king of Gath. Now, just so you know, the giant that he fought and decapitated, Goliath, was a hometown hero of Gath. Gath was one of the five Philistine cities. What that means is that David was going straight to the enemy. Now, here's the thing. He was carrying the sword of Goliath. He was going straight to the enemy. This is like David being the obvious uh, murder suspect, carrying the murder weapon, going to the scene of the crime. Are you getting me? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense what God told him. Right after the tabernacle, he was led toward Gath the enemy's territory, carrying the enemy's sword. I think sometimes what God tells us doesn't make sense. And David wasn't making a very smart decision here. But right after he consulted the priest, whatever God told him doesn't make sense, but whatever God told him will save his life. Because that is what David actually did. He went to the tabernacle, he found bread and sword, but then... It was led to a very specific destination, the destination of the enemy. Sometimes what God tells us doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because we don't see the whole plan. We don't see the whole plan because God gives them piece by piece. And why does God do that? Because God wants us to learn humility and dependence. See, if David is to become king of Israel one day, he must become completely different from Saul. 
if he must become a man after God's own heart, he must learn true humility and obedience. Because if not, if he suddenly ascends the throne, he will become the very man he was running away from. Let me show you the lessons what I learned here from chapters 21 and 22. The first lesson is the lesson of vulnerability. Vulnerability is necessary because it leads us to true humility. Let me say that again. Vulnerability is necessary because it leads us to true humility. Now think about Jacob for a while. All Jacob thought was that if he gets the inheritance from his brother Esau, then all his problems will be solved. It was dead wrong. So he stole away the inheritance from his brother Esau, and then he found himself running away as a fugitive because his brother Esau was so mad he wanted to be killed. And so he went to his uncle Laban, and for 14 years, he became a shepherd of goats and sheep. And maybe all the while, in those 14 years, he was looking up at the stars and was thinking, what's, what's the use of the inheritance if I'm just a shepherd? What's the use of the inheritance back home if I will just grow old in this land as a shepherd boy? It doesn't make sense. But you see, in those years of vulnerability, those years made him realize that his true inheritance is God. The enemy territory is where David was most vulnerable, and that was where God has led David to the enemy territory. In the enemy territory, David would feel most abandoned. So in order for God to shape David, God has to lead him all the way to the enemy territory where he can be fully vulnerable and realize that his true anointing rests on God. You see, in the lesson of faith, even Jesus had to become vulnerable. He had to experience the same thing. The scripture said that after Jesus was baptized, he was led to the wilderness. Not Herod, not Pilate, not Mary, not Joseph. It was the Holy Spirit who led him to the wilderness. And why is that? Because the place of wilderness is known to be the territory of the enemy. The place is known to be the enemy territory. Wilderness is where the unclean spirits inhabit. Wilderness represents waterless, lifeless places that lead to death. How do we know that? Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. This is what Jesus said. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And what's waterless places? The wilderness. Nobody goes to the wilderness to have fun. Only in Arizona, where I lived before. In the Middle East, in the ancient times, the wilderness represents the enemy territory. And yet in this place is where the Holy Spirit brought Jesus to learn true humility. See, even Jesus was not exempt from the lessons of faith. Vulnerability is necessary because vulnerability leads to true humility. Do you feel vulnerable? Do you feel sometimes you're isolated? And therefore, this leads you to humble yourself before God. So David went to the enemy territory, and this was like going to the wilderness. This is what happened. When he went to the city of Gath, the people actually recognized him. He was a celebrity hero. So in verse 10, it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? I mean, even Achish recognized David, not Saul, as the king of the land. 
Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. I mean, even the enemy knows that David is the real hero. He's the king. But then his cover is blown. He was caught. Everybody knew about him. There was even a song about him. So think about this. David, he thought he was seeking refuge in Gath, but his cover was blown. Everybody knows him, and he had to improvise. And so what he did was he acted insane. This is crazy. You look at the story. It says he acted insane. And because he was that good, even the king of Gath fell for the trick and believed him. And so he escaped. Next thing we know, David escaped and found another refuge in the cave of Adullam. So he thought he was going to find refuge in the tabernacle. He was led to Gath the enemy territory. He thought he was going to find refuge in the enemy territory, but now he was led to a cave in Gath. Meanwhile, Saul caught up with the, with the priest that helped David. It turned out to be one of the bloodiest scenes in the history of the Bible. This is where Saul confronted the priest and accused him of conspiracy. King is, Saul is not forgiving. This is what happened. This is how the priests tried to justify himself. 1 Samuel 22, verse 14. Then Ahimelech, he was the priest, answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? What he's practically saying is that David is a good guy. Why are you running after David? He's good. He's your, he's your bodyguard. He's your captain. He's for you. He's not fighting against you. And then he said, Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? What he's saying is that this is part of my job. Consulting God for the king is part of my job. Consulting God for David is part of my job. I'm not guilty of anything. But Saul is unforgiving. He won't listen. So Saul commanded his bodyguards to kill the priests. The bodyguards refused. And Saul turned to a hitman by the name of Doeg, and this is what it said in verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put down to the sword both man and woman and child and infant and ox and donkey and sheep he put to the sword. I mean, if you think about it, this is a, a massacre. Saul was willing to commit a massacre just because he thought this priest and the whole town of the priest conspired against him with David. Now, I'm going to tell you a piece of information that you might probably have overlooked. What, what this is all about. Now, back in chapter 2, there was a high priest by the name of Eli. We know about this because we have covered this. Eli was the high priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both Hophni and Phinehas were priests, but they were corrupt. What do they do? They steal from the food offerings, and they rape women in the tabernacle. And all, all the while, Eli turned a blind eye on their crimes. And so God was not pleased. And so God said, I will destroy the household of Eli. Now, how, how do we know that that Eli conspired because of the way he died. When the Ark of the Covenant 
was captured by the Philistines, the news came back, and Eli got the news. He was so shocked at the news that he fell backwards while sitting down. He fell backwards, he hit his head, and he died. And there's a very small description of why he died. The Bible said he was so heavy. He's probably 450 pounds sitting in a chair. And why was he heavy in the first place? Because every time his two sons steal from the food offering, they give to their father. They give to the big guy. I'm sorry, and I'm not talking about the, the guy in DC. I'm talking about Eli, literally the big guy. Okay? Calm down. <laughs> the big guy was Eli. Okay? He got so heavy from eating of the food the sons stole. He was conspiring. That, that was, God was not so pleased with that. So God said, I will not tolerate this. And God, and God decided that he will terminate all the clans of Eli, all the priests in his clans. And so this passage, according to the scholars, is a fulfillment of the prophecy back in chapter 2, when Doeg massacred the whole town of Nob. While this massacre is happening, David was hiding in a cave. He was so brave when he fought Goliath. I mean, nobody dared to fight Goliath. But where was David now? Where is God's champion? Why is God's champion hiding in a cave when the people of Nob were being massacred? He was in the cave because God's champion wasn't ready yet. God's champion needed to learn lesson number two. See, isolation is the second step to the lesson of faith. He was trying to seek refuge but first, he went to the tabernacle. He didn't find it. He went to Gath. He didn't find it. Now, he was in the cave of Adullam where he wants to learn what it means to trust in God. But in the cave of Adullam, David will learn the value of isolation and dependence. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with about him 400 men. Cave of Adullam. When you hear the word today, cave, you're thinking adventure and spelunking, right? When you go to the north of the Philippines, there was a Sagada uh, town, and you think about cave, it's spelunking. Now, in the ancient times, caves were tombs. It was the place of the dead. Nobody goes to the cave and have a picnic and have fun. Caves are tombs. In the New Testament, we read that there was a story about a demon-possessed man who lives in the tombs. And by tombs, we mean caves. And why caves? Because the demonic spirits who possess the person live in the caves. Because caves are tombs. Therefore, it's no surprise that demons inhabit tombs. But David, even though he knows that, he found something else in the cave of Adullam. Now, one of the Psalms that David wrote was Psalm 142. Verse 4 says, Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to the Lord, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living. 
You see, David understood that the cave can be useful at a certain extent. Caves can be a temporary shelter, but what he learned is that caves was necessary to understand dependency in God. Isolation is necessary because it leads us to true dependency. So in the cave, he was isolated. He was not abandoned. There's a difference between isolation and abandonment. Abandonment means you are left alone, abandoned. No one is with you. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the disciples of Jesus abandoned him, abandoned. Everybody left. Isolation is when you feel you're alone, but in actuality, you're not alone. See, David was not alone in the cave. Because that is what it said in verse 2. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there with him about 400 men. He was with 400 men in the cave. He was not abandoned. He was only isolated. Now, God seemed to have gathered all the people with similar experiences to David, and David became the rallying point. And I think this is God's way of telling David, this is what your anointing is for. I mean, you are king. I anointed you as king, and this is why it's for. But think that these people need a king. And that's why probably God is saying, let's start with 400. Maybe let's, let's not start with the whole nation of Israel. Let's start with 400. So David writes in the psalm, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. What does he mean by that? Now, we understand refuge, shelter, security. But what does he mean by my portion in the land of the living? What is this all about? And I think David read from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Listen to chapter 32. This is Moses saying, When the Most High God gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of, number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Now, now, this might be confusing at first, but this is something to do with what happened in Genesis chapter 11. When God finally came down, confused the language, and scattered the nations by nations and tongues, and then he fixed the borders. And he made the sons of God, the heavenly beings, to be in charge of those nations. Remember in the book of Daniel, there was the prince of Persia that fought with Michael? That was one of the sons of God. But what is said here is that this one piece of land that God took for himself, that he will be in charge, was the land of Israel, Jacob's. Jacob will become Israel. So the land of Israel was God's territory. Yahweh chose the nation of Israel for himself as his treasured possession. Let me teach you one Hebrew word today. Just one. You don't even have to memorize this. All right? Are you ready? The word is segula. Say it after me. Segula. What is segula? Segula is the equivalent to the phrase treasured possession. When you think about treasured possession, you're thinking of maybe the woman's jewelry box. Everything there is precious. Segula. Most treasured possession. Mawala ng lahat. lang to. That's it. Treasured possession. Or maybe you're thinking... Your most expensive dress or your most expensive shoes. Maybe you have a Louboutin or a Manolo Blanik. I don't know, it's $3,000. Or maybe, God forbid, your favorite son or your favorite daughter. Okay? Segula, your most treasured possession. Israel, for God, 
was his most treasured possession, his chosen people, his beloved people, his adopted people, his segula. Now, very close to this concept of segula was the concept that God, that David claims for God. And David said, the Lord is my portion. Similar to the portion is the word inheritance. Now, to those of you who have rich parents, you will have an inheritance, correct? Yes? Anyone received a huge inheritance yet? Not me, not me also. I don't have a gazillionaire father. And maybe if you, if you become rich, you can you know, give something to your children when you pass away. Inheritance. What David is saying is that God is my portion. God is my inheritance. What does it mean by God was his inheritance? What he's saying is that, imagine this, he's in a cave. He was away from his land. So this is how it goes. This is the land of the enemy. This is Gibeah. This is the cave of Adullam in the middle. He was in between. He's not in there, in Bethlehem, his hometown. Whatever happens to him, he cannot get into his inheritance, the land. We're talking about the land. He's not also in the enemy's territory. He is in between. He's, he's an exile from the land. What this means is that he was driven away from the land. And he was afraid of losing that inheritance. Because to be driven away from the inheritance, or to be driven away from the land, is equivalent to losing your inheritance. Losing your inheritance is your legal standing in society. That means if you lose your inheritance, you lose being David. You lose your standing in society. You lose being the son of your father. That's in their culture. Why would they say that? Do you remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son asked for his inheritance. You remember that, right? When the prodigal son asked for inheritance, he lost the piece of land. Because that was his inheritance. He also cut ties with his father. He's like disowning his father. He's like saying, Dad, I know you are my dad, but from now on, when I get the inheritance, we are no longer related. So he went to the other way. He went to a very faraway place. But then when he came back, he came back, it means he does not have anything to return to. He has no more land to return to. That means when he came back, there is no more father to return to. That's why when he decided to come back, he decided to come back not as a son, but as a slave. A slave has no relationship with the father. This is the reason why the father said, my son is dead, but it's now alive. This is why also the elder brother hates his brother. Because to him, the younger son should not be given a second chance. He's no longer a son. If you lose your connection with the land, if you lose your connection with the inheritance, you lose your connection as a son. Have you ever wondered what Jesus really meant when he explained to Nicodemus, you have to be born again? This concept of inheritance has something to do with being born again. John chapter 3, verse 3 to 5, this is what Jesus said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Nicodemus is old, and he knows what it means to be born again. So it's not logical for Jesus to be saying, you have to be born again. I mean, he was thinking physically. Because again, to him, to be born again, you have to go back to your mother's womb. Because 
being a son is connected to your inheritance. And if it's connected to your inheritance, that means inheriting the kingdom of God. So he asked logically, he said in verse 4, How can a man be born when he's old? He had entered the second time into his mother's womb and be born. Now Jesus understands this. So Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, that also, is, that also means born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is clear here is that being born again is equivalent to entering the kingdom of God. And entering the kingdom of God is equivalent to inheriting the land or the kingdom of God. When David was writing Psalm 142 verse 5, he was hoping that God will bring him back to the land, the land of his inheritance. Because he was cut off from his inheritance. So when Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus, what he's saying is that you have lost your right to the inheritance of the land. You have lost your right to the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of Israel, or the nation of Israel, was like the prodigal son. They have lost their right as a son to the inheritance. They're no longer son. And the father must bring back the prodigal son and must legally adopt him back because the only chance that the prodigal son will be installed or reinstated to his former privileges was to be adopted. Adoption is equivalent to being born again. You don't have to come go back to the womb. All you have to do is to be adopted by the father. You see, this is, we, this is us. We are like the prodigal son. We have strayed away from God. When Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, you have to be born again to inherit the kingdom of God, what Jesus is saying is, you have to be adopted back into the family of God in order to inherit the kingdom. Because without being adopted back in the family of God, you have no portion. You see, David did not find his refuge in the tabernacle. David did not find refuge in the city of Gath. David did not find refuge even in the cave of Adullam. What he found there was the lesson of faith. Isolation and vulnerability leads to humility and true dependence in God. That is what he learned from the cave. And what he's saying is that my true refuge is not the tabernacle, it's not Gath, it's not the cave. My true refuge is God Himself. We are maybe isolated, but we are not abandoned. We may be vulnerable, but we are not hopeless. Beloved, God sees you as His treasured possession. You are loved. Tell it to yourself, I'm loved. Say it with conviction, I'm loved. The Bible said you are His treasured possessions. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You are His treasured possession. You are the segula. So what that means is that your present circumstances do not define you. Your present circumstances that does not mean God does not love you. You see, in our vulnerability and isolation, we look to God. And we say with David, Psalm 142, verse 5, I cry to the Lord out of desperation, out of isolation, out of vulnerability. And I say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed our Father. Thank you for reminding us once again who we are. We are your treasured possession. We are your segula. Thank you for reminding us once again that you are our Father, that in you we find the true refuge, that even though it's hard to navigate the life of isolation and vulnerability, the lessons of faith, Father, we thank you for the assurance that you love us. Would you allow us, Father, to feel that love? Meet us, Father, wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray.